me ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll be reading from there in just a, a few moments. Uh, I think you, you are generally all aware this morning that Pastor John has gone to Birmingham, Alabama to be with the people at Briarwood Presbyterian Church and particularly with the Reader family. And if you know John, you know the close connection that he's had with Harry Reader uh, over the years as a, as a mentor and as a father in the faith. And, uh, and it, it, is, it is true this day that whether you know it or not, whether you've ever heard the name before, that you are a, uh, a benefactor of the life of Harry Reader. You have been blessed by him in, in numerous ways because of work that he was doing from the very beginning of our denomination, uh, serving before the Lord in, in faithfulness and conviction. Um, he was a, a person that, um, uh, if you've ever heard him, it, you know that if, if he preached out of a phone book, it would sound amazing. Um, and how much more when the Spirit of God is at work in him and using the Word of God to proclaim truth with conviction. Um, and, and we have all been been greatly blessed by him. And so it, it is a day of great sorrow with his uh, passing for this church. And it's also a day of great joy. You have this morning uh, the privilege of a church of taking in new members, of seeing the body of Christ grow here at, at Christ Church, uh, and of recognizing graduates and seeing the work uh, of uh, that's been accomplished in the lives of these young people. And and you recognize that you can, as believers, you can hold both these things together. Romans twelve fifteen. we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. And these are the things that we are called to do in this life, to have frightening things that, that are uh, before, things that cause us great grief, and at the same time to, to be looking at things that should be sources of great joy. And I hope, I hope this morning when we look at this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, uh, Pastor John and I, we talked about uh, what might be appropriate for the occasion, uh, and, and I think these are appropriate words. And so look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll stand together and honor the reading of God's Word of verses 1 through 12. So stand together with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1, the preacher writes these things. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And the madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 
For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Grass withers and flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord God, we ask you that by the working of your spirit that you would give us light that we might see the marvelous things that are written in your law, that we would behold your work, that we would apply it to our lives, and even that we would be pointed to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. That is a somber passage to read. If you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that it is, it is written by someone who is a preacher, and you think he must be the worst preacher ever. Who preaches what he preaches there? Well, if you go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you find out some, uh, something about that preacher. Look back at Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 3, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he writes, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You know this is going to be depressing when you read words like that. I'll, I'll take a moment here to explain already from the very beginning when he, he writes vanity of vanities, he doesn't write vanity of vanities. This is a terrible English translation of that word. Uh, and basically every English translation kind of gets this wrong. Um, but almost every modern evangelical scholar will tell you there's a much better translation for that word. Especially because of the, the, the connotation we have. When you hear the word vanity, you think of someone who stares at the mirror a lot, right? Who, who wants to know exactly how they're like. That is, couldn't be further from what's going on here with the preacher. The Hebrew word hebel is, is one that is better translated as simply mist. And it's the idea of something that is ephemeral. It is something that is, that is fleeting, that is, that is passing, something that, that goes away quickly. It's the idea when he says it's a, a vanity of a vanity. He's saying it's a mist of a mist. What kind of a mist is that? It's a very insubstantial mist. And, and he's pointing us not, not to the idea that everything is, is some self-centered, pride, obnoxious kind of thing that, that makes it all worthless. He's pointing us to the fact that everything in life is passing. That whatever substance that you might see and feel around you, however much you, th- you think there is strength in the chair that is holding you up right now or the floor beneath it, he d- he's saying all of these things are passing. It is an inescapable reality. It is avoidable. We take some time coming to terms with that. We, we, we don't see how quickly things are going from our perspective unless you've turned 50 years old. And anybody in here 50? I'm 50. Turned 50 a couple of years ago, and I'll start to sound like an old man. I'll start to tell you about all the things that hurt, all the things that don't work like they used to, all the things that that have gotten harder, dimmer, that that, that are more painful. And we'll come back, and we're going to explore that in some depth tonight if you come back. Very exciting stuff when Pastor Scotty comes to town. You can avoid these things for a time. You, you, you can somehow sort of miss these when you're a child and everything is growing and becoming bigger and you're moving into these things that, that seem so substantial in how they're going. It just seems like it's going to always move forward. In my life, I have had very little death around me. 
I, and I admit to that. Only this, this past year, I lost uh, a stepmother. The first child my grandparents have, or the, first, the, the first grandparent that my children have ever lost uh, in our family. We have eight or nine uh, great-grandchildren, not, not my family, my brother does. He's way ahead of me. Uh, and, and this would be the first grandparent that they've lost. Very little of that. But what happens when you get to a certain point in time that you realize it's, these start to become much nearer to you where they once were far off. Yesterday I was with two, two different people, two dear friends. Uh, one of them had, had uh, lost her husband. And then the past couple of years, he was a, a young and faithful godly minister. Uh, I feel guilty every day in, in my office and the work that I do when I compare myself to him and, and how patient and what an effective teacher he was and how much he loved congregation and, and how, how he exercised hospitality. And we, I, I sat with his wife yesterday for a few hours and we talked about how much we missed her husband. And later on in the afternoon, I had the privilege of going to a birthday party of a 95-year-old friend, Jerry. Uh, and this guy is some kind of guy. He's had some kind of life, and he had a lot of friends. Um, if you're 95, you can, you can retain a lot of people over the years. And, and, and both of uh, uh, these occasions, this young minister who died and this old man who's still going on, I can look at him and I can say, his time on, on this earth is short. And most of the friends, this was at a retirement center, you could look around at his friends and say, their time is short. We're reminded by the, the, the passing of, of Fairy Reader, of Tim Keller, that, that time on earth is short. And that's something that the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes in chapter 9 is pointing you to. He's pointing you towards this, this, this brevity of life, this certainty of death. And, and the Holy Spirit wants you to be confronted with that reality. Listen again, back in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, the preacher says, I've been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun. Behold, all is not vanity, but a mist and a striving after the wind. The the preacher of this book doesn't want to shy away from these realities. He wants to confront himself with them, and he wants to have you be confronted with them as well so that you can contemplate your life in this world. And so we come back to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, the, the first part of this. And, I, and I'll kind of break down the parts for you. This is, a, um, you maybe have heard the Hebrew um, um, pattern of, of, of writing that wants to give emphasis. It's called a, a chiastic structure, a cross structure. And what will often happen is in a poetic situation, we'll have a, a thing that's said uh, and then a thing to be emphasized and another thing that's said that mirrors that first thing. It, it, but it's to draw your attention to the middle. And I think we have that here. Verses 1 through 6, um, if I were going to summarize what the preacher is saying, he says, everybody dies. Thank you. And then in verses 7 through 10, he says, enjoy the life you have. And then in verses 11 and 12, he comes back to that initial thought, everybody dies and no one knows when. And so we start by listening to what he says when he says that that everyone dies in verses 1 through 6. He starts by by stressing, you can see it in his thesis there, when he says the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. This this sounds very hopeful. We're encouraged as he starts out. He points us to that, yes, the Lord is watching over us. This is a a hundred contemporary Christian songs. The Lord is watching over me. I'm safe in his hands. Everything is great. 
But he doesn't end his song there. He unfortunately keeps singing because this is not the way to sell albums uh, or whatever you sell these days when you sell music. He goes on to, to, to sing about or to preach about the harshest of realities. He points to the fact that God holds all things in his hand, the life, the character, the works, of the righteous, and, and, and the wise, and they're all under his sovereign control, and that all of these who are before him, whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him, they all belong to him, but all that you can see is what's in front of you, but not what is coming. It could be God's love or it could be God's hate is sort of a, a, a strong way of saying that. Some, but it's, I think we see something similar to that in Isaiah 45. When the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah and he says, I'm the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And then he says this, I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity or create evil. A more literal reading. He says, I, the Lord, do all these things. The Lord is he's not apologetic for, for what he does as he exercises his sovereignty over creation. He doesn't ask us, are, are, are you okay with losing this person who is precious and dear to you, who you are so dependent upon? He doesn't have to explain himself on that, and, and we even have this habit of, of, of saying, well, when we get to heaven, we're going to, we'll, we'll know why this had to happen in this way. But we're not actually told that in Scripture, that the Lord is going to justify himself in every way to us. Instead, we will, be, we will have those questions be swallowed up in our nearness to the, the person and, and the wisdom and the glory and the weightiness and the holiness of God. What the preacher is pointing us to is not saying that God has no love for his people, whether they suffer or, or die. He says, his word tells us, precious in the, in the sight of the Lord are the death of his, of his holy ones, of his saints. He cares deeply about their death. But what we're, we're learning from this passage is that there's, there's no assurance that tomorrow is going to be okay. There's no assurance that, that, that things will keep going on the way they have. There's no assurance that you will keep growing, keep progressing, keep getting better. You don't know what's ahead of you. You don't know if, if tomorrow you're going to get a windfall inheritance from some distant cousin you didn't know and didn't care to lose. Or if you're going to make an annual visit to the doctor and do that routine that you always do and the doctor's going to come back and say, you know what, I'm a little concerned about something I'm seeing here. It could be a nasty surprise. The preacher back in 9-2, and again, it's how he identifies himself as, as the preacher. He says it's the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. He says that, that we don't know what tomorrow is, is going to hold. We don't know what's waiting for us. And we also don't have an expectation for, for what that day is going to be based on whether or not you are righteous or wicked. He goes through a list of different things here. Righteous, wicked, good, evil, clean, unclean, sacrificer, uh, one who avoids sacrifice. One who avoids sacrifice would be someone who, who says, I have no sin. I don't have a sin problem. I don't need an answer for my sin. We know people like that. The oath maker. We had people who were oath makers this morning who made vows before God in the congregation. And those who abstain and say, no, not committing myself. That end is going to come to every single one. Everyone is going to die. 
Harry Reader, Tim Keller, Herod the Great, Titus Vespasian, temple maker, temple destroyer. Whether their life has been for evil or for good, for noble things or for, for horrible things, everyone is going to come to that same end. Everyone does well to hear that, to know that, to, to not avoid that fact, to be taught to number your days that you may get a heart of wisdom. And that should speak back to our lives. And that's exactly what he intends us to do, is to speak back into our present situation, our life right now. And so look as, as he turns the corner in verse 7 and takes you in a different direction. The preacher goes back to something that's actually a very familiar refrain throughout the, the, the book of, of Ecclesiastes, something that, that keeps coming up, that he keeps returning to as a part of, his, of these somber, sober reflections on life. Verse 7, he gives a command. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. These are, this is called a, a carpe diem passage, a seize the day passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me, let me take you on a quick tour because this depressing preacher who's not the best preacher I've ever heard, much rather hear Harry Reader than the preacher of Ecclesiastes, but I have to hear them both. He takes us back and he, and he reminds us that there is something that, that, that is tied into how we live in that light of that passing knowledge of what this life is. Ecclesiastes 2.24, he says, There is nothing better for a person to know than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 3.12, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 322, I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. For this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And one more, Ecclesiastes 8, 15. And I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What he's saying is that life under the sun, life lived in this world, the world as we see it is sort of the under the sun picture. It's not a God-centered picture. It's a world that's lived out by the eyes. But he says in living this life in this world, there is nothing better than to enjoy these things that God has given us to, to, to share in, to eat and to drink and to work. He says all of those things are our source and a place of joy. And in fact, he, he turns here and Ecclesiastes 9 is different from those previous passages because before he, he gives them as better than statements. He says, you know, there's, there's this, but at least you can do this. But here he commands you. He says, no, this is what you're supposed to to do in this world in light of the death that surely awaits you is that you eat and you drink and you work under the eyes of God. Eat your bread with joy, verse 7. He says, 
actually taste it. Let, let, let it pass over your palate and enjoy what's going into your mouth. Recently, they opened up a donut place that's between my house and my work. Maverick Donut, some people from, some refugees from Canada moved down and brought this, this horrible addiction with them. I, I went in for the donuts and in looking for the donuts, and there were some amazing donuts, but there was an apple fritter. And this apple fritter is unlike anything I've ever tasted. I, I will think about it two or three times in the sermon just because it has that profound an impact on you. And the preacher would say, buy the apple fritter. One. Enjoy it. Savor it. Appreciate it. Whatever you are, again, some people are gluten-free and bread is not on the menu as much and I understand that. But there are things to eat and to enjoy, to come into your mouth. Bread is, bread is a euphemism for all the things that we eat in, in Scripture. We should enjoy what comes into us. He says, drink wine with a merry heart. Don't look to the wine to make you merry. He says, this is the attitude that you have when you drink it. Drink it out of joy, out of gratitude, out of thankfulness for, for God's good gifts. It's not a solution, it's an expression of faith. He also says in verse 7 that God has accepted your works, that, that He approves of, of what you do, is that, is that God has pleasure in your labors, in your working. He smiles upon it. He commanded, six days you shall work. And the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God in which you shall rest. This is, this is how God wants you to live. Even though you are dying, every one of you, the youngest child in here is dying They're closer to death today than they were the day before. He says, this is how you're going to live. He says, let your garments be white. He tells us how to dress. He says, says, put on clothes that are white, that are fine linen. It's the color of cleanness, of purity, of celebration, the brightness of glory. It's something, if you were to look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you would see that, that as uh, the, one of the, the few times in the Old Testament it uses this description of it in this way, it, it, it says that they were preparing to move the ark of God into the temple which Solomon had built. In the Levitical choir, they were to be arrayed in fine linen, that, the white that is, that is spoken of here. It is the color of, of celebration before a holy God who causes you to wear white, which is, of course, the celebration that we come to in the book of Revelation. The church of Sardis, the, the, the Lord Jesus speaks to the, to the angel of the church. He speaks to their messenger. This is the proclamation. He says, yet yeah, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. This is for the redeemed to, to, to dress this way, to be covered with the righteousness of Christ. He says to put oil on your head. Of course, you think of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Isaiah speaks of the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that the Lord will give to his holy ones. And of course, we think in the the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes, he said, It is God who has established us with you in Christ and has anointed us 
who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee that he, that he comes down upon us, that just as the oil would anoint the head, that the Holy Spirit comes down upon us to dwell in us, to, to change us from the inside out so that we can live differently in this world, that we can have gladness, that we can have joy, so that we can live and do our work with a rejoicing. And then, of course, he says, to live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your passing life, your fleeting life. That also reflects the words of Solomon in Proverbs 5.18. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And of course, that takes us to that gospel picture in the New Testament, doesn't it? When, when Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It, it is a speaking to us about the kind of joy that we can have in our existence. The, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes in his, in his depression and despair and looking at the world under the sun, he is driven to these things that point us to what Christ has done for his people, to who he's made us into, to, to what we can become in terms of how we live. It's a very different world. It says the Lord takes pleasure in your work. That you're to delight in that as well. And again, this is an ancient world. Imagine the kind of work that, that, that has gone on. This applies to slaves and to free. It applies to soldiers and civilians, to kings, commoners, those who are, who are laboring at the mill, who are grinding flour, those who are serving in the temple. It doesn't matter who. This is one of the, the, the great things that, that Martin Luther, the great reformer, did when, when he, he began to proclaim the word. He began to say that, no, all work is dignified. All of it belongs to God and it is, is to be done in a way that, that, that glorifies him. Even the milkmaid is his and smiles and God smiles upon her work. He reminds you, he says that these are vain days, these are passing days. And so, so, it, so it's not that we're always looking around the corner for that next thing, but to take joy in where we are, when we are, how we are. A sermon on the Lord's Day that's going a little bit long. And you're thinking, man, when, when will this person stop? It's, it's to reclaim that moment in your spirit. Understanding that the work of the Christ on your behalf to change who you are and how you exist in the world, to reorient you, to, to, to make you see these are the words of life. Where else shall I go but to that which Christ has declared? Now, in your days, in your passing, in your fleeting days, is that you can, by the grace of God, the Spirit of God, you can rejoice, eat, and drink, and be merry. Because God commands you to do those things in these moments, even in how you work. This is a celebration. It's what God's people are to do. That grain and wine and oil is what, is what took place and what was brought to the temple whenever they, or brought to, the, to, to in Jerusalem whenever they were attempting to restore things and to restore worship before the house of God. But it's also how we celebrate. Turn, turn in your Bibles back a few pages to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, the, the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then he says in Psalm 104, 14, You, have, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine 
to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. To look at all those things that you are enjoying and receiving and recognizing this is your Father giving them to you. Do you enjoy your work? That is a gift from God. Do you enjoy that glass of wine or whatever refreshing thing you find to drink? It is a gift from God. When you sit down at the table and there is bread to break, that is a gift from God. Verse 33, the psalmist writes, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and praise the Lord. When was the last time that, that you meditated before God in your day? This is, this is one of the gifts from the, the Puritans, one of the, the practices that they had. When we, 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 we think about Psalm 119, and we think about the, the command there to meditate upon the Word of God. To, and I think this is a wonderful habit when you have your, your, your morning uh, devotional time, the only time to do it. I don't, I don't understand people who do it at night, but okay, that's okay. But if you can, when you read the Word... As you go through whatever passage, if you're you're a chunker or you're just kind of a small, bite-sized kind of person, so long as you are letting God speak to you. But if you take hold of some part of that word and just tuck it away inside you, and then as you go into the day, if some 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 way somehow you go back and you pluck out that part that you had you had thought about that morning and remember that scripture during the day. Is a way to, to, to sweeten your day and to, and to sanctify your day before God. When you go into those unholy, the, the common parts of the day, not, not where wickedness is going on, but just those parts of the day that just feel very secular. And you say, let me bring the Lord into this. What did he say to me in his word when I read this morning? But then, then the Puritans, they, they not only had that which is so clear in Scripture, but they, they had another practice. They, this is level two meditation. Is they would let the Lord speak to them from their day and remind them of Scripture from, from what they were doing, how they were living as they were in their doing. And so they would be out in the pasture in the morning. And they, they, would, they would have the, the scythe. They'd be ready to, uh, to knock down the standing grain. And as the sun comes up and it, 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 it breaks the, their horizon, they stop and they say, there's the light of Christ breaking into my day. I once walked in darkness, now I see by His great light. It didn't have to be from the Scripture reading. They just had Scripture reading that was, that was part of them, that belonged to them. And the Lord could speak to them in those moments, and they would sanctify the sun coming up by remembering what His Word said. This is how we're to live before God, recognizing His, His, His grace and His mercy to us throughout us, that we could enjoy these things before God. Well, back to Ecclesiastes Chapter 9, the, 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 the other part of the dark, verses 11 and 12, offsetting the light in the middle portion. The preacher writes, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in evil nets, birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time and it suddenly falls upon them. Just to be clear, there, there are no guarantees in life under the sun. There's nothing that, that you can do living by the eyes that you have in the front of your face, that, that look out into the world, that observe the things around you, that are, that are sensory receivers. 
and they help you interpret and kind of navigate this life. He says they don't offer you guarantees of what's coming next. And that's true for all the world, the righteous and for the unrighteous again. He says the battle is not to the strong. You would think so, right? Shouldn't the, the, the big person, the strong person win? But Scripture tells us that's not how it works out when the Lord sets his mind to deliver a David from a Goliath. We know what we want, and sometimes we think it's going our way, and sometimes we pat ourselves on the back and think we have this figured out. Matt's sitting back there, and he's congratulating himself. I finished. I'm a doctor. The world needs me desperately, and I have places to go. And I hope he does. I hope he puts it to good use. I hope he serves people. But his, his, his intention is not what he is going to become in this world, how great a name he's going to make for himself, how many people he's going to serve. His, his intention is to live each day before the face of God, to delight in God in that day, delight in, in the work that comes to him one by one. Each person who comes and lays down the chair and opens their mouth and says, do your magic, is that he enjoys that before God, whoever that patient is. And he thanks God for that work. And that's true for every one of us. Wherever we are is that our work belongs to him. Our bread belongs to him. Our wine belongs to him. Our day belongs to him. We don't live by, by keeping score. We, we, don't, we don't count and accumulate and, and, and number our army. We know what a sin that was. Instead, we give thanks to God for what he's provided for us. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah. He said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. He's shown you. He is the Lord. He does what he pleases and we rejoice to know that. And it puts us in our place. That's what the Apostle Paul was, was teaching the Corinthian church, this church that exalted in self, that was all about self-promotion, about competition, about getting ahead, about, about making a name for themselves, about eventually getting a statue on the street. Some of them bought them, were doing that kind of thing. Paul writes when he opens that letter, for, he says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, nor not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is Foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let, not the, one who boast, let, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The preacher is trying to get you to reframe your life, to rethink what you think you know, to to rethink where you think you are going. He says you have to look at things differently from the unbelieving world, those who live life under the sun, who have no promises, no guarantees on how life is going to go. He says this is how your life is going to go. You are going to enjoy God now on this day in the way that he has called you to do. How do we respond? We, we embrace death as part of life. We look at the passing of Harry Reeder, of Tim Keller, of a multitude of those that we have respected, that we have loved, that we have known, that we have depended upon. 
And we say this is as it will be since the fall of man. Until Christ returns and restores all creation, this is the way that it's going to be. Lives are going to be foreshortened. They're going to be untimely. They're going to be inconvenient. And they're going to be painful. And eventually you're going to be the cause of that pain for someone else. But in that there is hope. Hope that belongs to us, uniquely to us as believers, that that those who live life only under the sun don't get to enjoy. Again, Paul testifies to us. Pastor John will be coming soon to this. Um, This was what he would have been preaching today. Paul writes, 831 in Romans, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Paul doesn't seem troubled by this. Sheep to be slaughtered. Wouldn't that trouble you? Paul's not troubled. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the redemptive context that belongs to you in the new covenant in light of Christ's coming is that you get to view death differently. It doesn't trouble you in the same way. And you get to live differently. You don't even have to have the food that you want. You don't have to have a a glass full of wine. You don't have to be married and have the perfect spouse and have the the, the dream job that you long for. It simply requires that you follow Christ where he is. He says his kingdom is, is is not about eating and drinking. He calls you to, to a sober but celebratory life. A life lived with Christ wherever you go. Bread eaten without gluttony. Wine drunk without drunkenness. Physical intimacy, but in the context of marriage. Work done for the sake of the Lord as unto the Lord. And we know that there's a place that we're going with all of this. Those things which, which he celebrates that, 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 that the preacher holds up for us when he says these are the things to, to, to go and to do and to enjoy. He's, he's actually taking us back to the garden. To, to this, this time in life where there was the fruitfulness of the vine, where there was, there was food to, to be had with, with, without all the, 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 the grinding evil of the kind of work that we do that, that, that thwarts the work. There was a, a, a simple work and a fruitful work, and he enjoyed all of those things. And, and the, the marriage was blessed. There was a perfect unity in that. The preacher looks back to that kind of day where there's that kind of unstained white garment kind of life. We know that we don't live that now. We know that we're not going to enjoy this now the way we should. You know how frustrated you've been in your attempts to to live life quorum Deo, 
before the face of God, to carpe diem, to seize the day. As much as you might want to do that, you know you're going to keep stumbling. But we should be pointed to a different day, a day that's coming ahead, a day that we long for, that we hear about, that the the Spirit proclaims to us in Revelation 19. John wrote when he said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself in white, fine, bright linen, Bright and pure, but the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, that day is coming when you will get the joy right in your day where you will eat and you will drink and you will wear white and you will work and you will live before God in perfect joy. In perfect glory. Let that teach you how to live today and tomorrow and the next day until that day when, as the preacher says, death is going to come. Because that is how to live before the face of God. Remembering God's face, His desire, and His pleasure on you when you live in that way.